Pints of Popcorn podcast coming at you with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 film Magnolia. Just the usual spoiler warning at the front end of the pod just to make sure that if you are intending to listen to this pod that you are well aware that you will have things about the film spoiled if you haven't seen it. Uh, otherwise, let's go. Shay, you smell like trouble. I'm fucking hammered, Dev. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spectre. There is the story of a boy genius. Willa Cathy, Thomas Kidd, Jean the Peaceful Clamoyer. And the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Béjar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Donny Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this album. What now, then? Me and him. Do you understand? There's no one else. No one else. The caretaker. Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. Love you too. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, please leave me a message at box number 82. And this will all make sense in the end. not an easy job. I have to take everything and play it as it lays. Sometimes people need a little help. Sometimes people need to be forgiven. And that is a very tricky thing on my part, making that call. But you can forgive someone, well that's the tough part. What can we forgive? Was that unclear? Kind of. God. Alrighty, pints and popcorn back with you for another week. Shay on the line, as per usual, pouring his pint of 1918 White Sox champagne. <laughs> Yes, sir. Andre. California champagne. Natural reserve. <laughs> Naturally fermented is what it says. <laughs> does it say exa- whatever? Does it say exactly where it's from in California or nope, just the whole state. Yeah. <laughs> That's where you could sign it. <laughs> a little to... bit a little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah. Because if it was like, you know, a fine the, the bottle is done. I've been on this. I've well, been. I've been on this. Glass of it next to me. Yeah, I've been on this call call with Shay for about half an hour before we started recording. I think, and he opened the bottle during the call. So it's a, it's a. You know, we really warm up for this podcast um, quite professionally, and I'm proud. I'm proud of our work ethic. 
Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, no, I'm fine. I, and I'm genuinely, but we do do a lot. We do a lot of pre, pre-chat, and that's what we, to try and warm ourselves up for it. So, which this. this I mean, this we be- have a sports co- yeah. podcast as well. And like when we started that sports podcast, we used to like get half in the bag before it because we were so nervous. So now it's like, I don't know. It kind of reminds me of doing that before yeah. we podcast, I guess, is, is doing that again. Like, even though I'm not nervous per se. Yeah, I remember that. First. Even though this is a big movie we're tackling. Yeah, I remember that first sports podcast we did. We were like at the O bar in Eugene, just smashing shots until you felt comfortable. And I was like, I was pretty. I was like, I don't know how this is going to go either. So, well, I had some pretty uh, serious clinical, de- untreated clinical depression going on. Now it's yeah. treated. So, uh, <laughs> and I think this movie is going to play into that a little yeah. bit. So, yeah. Uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's part of our ethos with the podcast is that we. You know, so much of and pathos, yeah, and so much of our movie chat and how we get around our our thoughts about movies and how we feel about them is sometimes having a beer and kind of talking it out, you know. And that's kind of what the where this podcast kind of generated from. Is same with our sports one, and this is the kind of movie that we definitely would have uh, had many beers talking about at the bar if I'd seen it at that time. But now I have seen it, and I hadn't either at the bar yeah. either. But now we have both seen it and have plenty of thoughts. Um, I've just seen it this week. Shay's seen it a few times. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 film Magnolia. It's like a, it's an epic film. It's an epic drama, which is not something you say too often because you know three epic. Hour, yeah, three hour films are often you know you could you know, Troy and Kingdom of Heaven those kind of films, Lord of the Rings, uh, war films. You don't often get a three hour film that is essentially it's a drama set in a single day. Uh, to do that um that's my it's literally an eighth of that day yeah and it's <laughs> <laughs> when i we, we got we got a math major here uh <laughs> <laughs> look at the big uh, look yeah. at the big brain on shay yeah hey uh, um, that's quick math that's what i bring to the podcast uh yeah i, I yeah <laughs> I was, uh, yeah um once you realize that it is all part of one day, and I mean, obviously, I think everybody realizes that right away, mm-hmm. but it is like a movie that like kind of breaks your brain a little bit the first time you see it, I think. In my opinion, it at least broke my brain, and I'm not saying that everybody's on the level of me, because I'm sure I'm much lower, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, definitely made me feel a little bit hollow after watching it the first time in a good, like, not in a bad way, but just in a, I have to re- rethink everything that I know type of way. And I think that's what Paul Thomas Anderson does really well with a lot of, like he really tests his audiences. And I've read the online critiques of this from several users and everything. And uh, I understand it. Um, maybe they're deeper than I am, but uh, I, this challenged me and I think it was worth, worth the challenge to dig through um, the three hours and the three hours kind of flew by to me on rewatch, especially. Yeah, well, I watched it for the first time um, yesterday, and because uh, the preface to this week's pod was, I just said me and Shay always collaborate and picking what movie we're going to do. But I just said this week, I just said, "Oh, Shay, you, you just pick one, um, and we'll roll with it." And he picked Magnolia, which I, you know, I've enjoyed the Paul Thomas Anderson films I've seen, so I was excited to see it because I knew it was a big film. I just, it just one of those ones that slipped by every time I thought about watching it. You know, just you just never did. So I was glad to get the opportunity to finally have to sit down and watch it. And yeah, last night. It's a three-hour film, so knowing that going into it, you're always you're always just like, oh god, 
am skeptical. I gonna be, yeah. Am I going to be able to, and like every scene, every conversation is captivating, and that's like I said, really impressive to do because often three hour films rely on um, you know epic set pieces in the sense of battles and whatnot to to sustain a three hour film. Some sort of action. Yeah, to, but that's what I think great screenwriters and Paul Thomas Anderson is certainly out of that school of the nineties, which has produced some of the great screenwriters that have rolled into the 21st century you know your tarantino's your uh, wes anderson's um you know kevin smith is an interesting career and he's not like in that i wouldn't put him in that echelon of but he's certainly got a unique voice as well those guys that came out of the 90s i wouldn't really put wes anderson in it either as even though he is my like favorite director i just meant writers that. that came out of the 90s with a di- like unique voices um yeah and they, yeah. yeah okay good point. Yeah. yeah they all like splintered too because nobody's really following the same vein at all yeah and um uh like his the great screenwriters can make conversation feel like action, um, and that's what that's what conversation is meant to be. It's meant to be driving story and whatnot in film, and they make and so many of those those, those conversations were just captivating. And I've watched a lot of films that aren't so good that conversations just drag. This one for three hours, I never I never got to the point of thinking, okay, whatever. Like, where's it? Uh, where's Henderson? I, I hopefully won't make that mistake too. Yeah. PTA. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, difficult. He, he said if he went back, if he, he said he's had the question asked, and I think it was in a Reddit AMA a few years ago, uh, someone asked, what would you do differently? He said, I'd tell myself to chill the fuck out and cut 20 minutes from the film. So he may he may make He's it. also said it's really fucking long yeah. when asked about Because he, he said in 99 after it was made, I think it was on the tour for There Will Be Blood, he said, mm. somebody asked him, like he said it was the best movie he'll ever make. Yeah was magnolia and somebody asked about him about it when uh, i think on the press junket for uh there will be blood or one of those films in that area era and um he said well all i can say is it's really fucking long <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know what part you cut from it yeah to his credit yeah. i yeah i'd have to watch it a couple more and times with that, that critical like you you've seen it a few more times so you might be able to find your way like i've just seen it the once which it's it's unique for me to coming into a podcast like this. I like that. Yeah, like I having like to, it that yeah. you've only seen it once. It's fun. Yeah, and I yeah I don't know what I'd cut because the three hours like you said it flew by like for me on a Saturday night like gone I started around six and I was thinking oh you know hopefully I'm still awake by the end of it because I was a bit tired from having work in the morning and whatnot but I was I was yeah really awake and energized at the end like already thinking about there's a lot going on yeah already thinking about this conversation <laughs> we we're gonna have today and. And obviously, a lot of the themes and um, conflicts and and tragedies that the film brings up um, about r- real human life, as well as the uh, the some the um, uh, uh, fantastical em- elements of the film, I guess you could say, <laughs> just bringing, oh, yeah, bringing yeah, all yeah. that together was um yeah it, it sent me to sent me to sleep last night with a lot of a lot of different things running through my mind, um, and it's yeah it's a wonderful film, and yeah like I said, just the first credit straight off the bat is that it's a real testament to screenwriting that um, anyone that says you can't write uh, sustained drama and conversation and conflict through conversation is just watch this film. It's, it's there. It, if you can, you can, it can be written. Um, and it's a, it's a real credit to his, his writing that he was able to do a film like this. Um, and as well as his direction of the film was wonderful too. He's certainly got his uh, own style with ca- camera movements and, and direction. Absolutely. And whatnot. But um, yeah, both, both the writing and direction of this film is wonderful um if you're someone who appreciates that side of film it's definitely one to watch for the more underrated sides of both writing and uh, writing and direction because you know we all watch great action films and whatnot that have wonderful cinematography as far as how they manage to make those things happen but watching a film that's so understated in this kind of way uh with both the writing and direction is really really 
cool to watch. Uh, my first time watching last night, it really is one of the things that stuck out to me as well as obviously the story and character, which we'll get into. Yeah, and I, th- I just think it's a, a a big deal that he was only 30 when he made this. Um, he was a hot director in Hollywood coming off of Boogie Nights, I believe. There might have been a film in between, but I'm pretty sure it went Boogie Nights uh, straight to Magnolia because yeah. Boogie Nights made him a star. And then this is what he came out with next. And Boogie Nights, the studio in gave, my opinion... Yeah, the studio gave him full control, uh, said that he can make, right. make whatever he wants. And got final cut, so that's why the film. Right, and, you that's know, why it's three hours when, long. Yeah, and when you can, when you get that kind of direction from a studio, it's um, it could either be a tra- tragic um, fuck up or it could be a masterpiece. And luckily, he went the the latter. Yeah, uh, I mean, he certainly at the time, like we've talked about, thought it was going to be his best movie ever, and I can see why because at the time, it's so much. Um, you know, Boogie Nights is great, and I think I think a lot of people would argue that Boogie Nights is a better film and I can understand that. I think Boogie Nights is a more entertaining film. Mm-hmm. But uh, to follow up Boogie Nights with this and challenge his viewers who maybe jumped on to his bandwagon and rather than please those people, he tested them. I think that is what makes Paul Thomas Anderson and I think that it really set the tone for what he's done since. It's just every single movie, you think you get used to his style you think you get used to, like, say, take There Will Be Blood, mm-hmm. which um, we just talked about, uh, maybe off air, maybe yeah. on air. But uh, just, like, the way he uses music in that in that movie. That, it, yeah. It's terrifying. And so he's pushing the audience even further. And then, you know, you go all the way to the, fan, uh, not The Phantom Thread, it's not a comic book movie, but <laughs> <laughs> you go all the way to Phantom Thread and you're like, what? what? I'm supposed to be excited about watching a movie about, like, a seamstress who's, like, but you get like you get so sucked into how he writes and controls the scenes that he tests you every step of the way, and it's just really fun to be a part of, I guess. Yeah. Um, even though it leaves me feeling empty and hollow inside, and make me makes me question everything. But I think that's what a good director should do. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think how I felt. I certainly felt. <laughs> fun like there's a change in yourself when you watch a film like this Uh, even if it doesn't change any way of how you fundamentally think it does make you think about things a bit and i've certainly i mean we it's it's interesting it's not like it's anywhere close to jojo rabbit that we did last week but the relationship dynamics between um adults and children and how we can we can affect uh how the effect of one treating the other can fundamentally change someone's life uh is very much uh part of the for the the central theme of this movie um magnolia and humanity in both yeah it's a huge deal yeah so it was one thing i was thinking about last night i was like it's not like we ever planned that any thematic closeness and you know obviously they're very different films otherwise but it did it did make me think about that again is this how important um interactions are and how we you know we sometimes you know a lot of the characters in magnolia um some of the ones with uh, that aren't quite don't have humanity to them um, in a way. You get, I mean, they're just looking straight at uh, Stanley's father. Um, you know, characters like that that are so so driven by their own own self selfish needs that they that they don't have the they don't have the energy or the 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 fundamental part of them inside to actually see how they're affecting others. And that's like just how I. It's something I was going to bed thinking about a lot last night. It was just how important every interaction we have with each other is, whether it be um, an adult to a child or even adult to adult as well. 
um, you know, we don't know how the little things we say to each other are going to ch- um, affect someone else's life. Um, working in cu- customer service, I often think that when I have a customer tell me I'm a piece of shit or something like that, I'm like, I'm just trying to do Yeah, it's not fun. Just trying to do my job, uh, man. And, you know, and I'll think about that for the rest of the day. And sometimes if it's a bad interaction, it'll be like a couple of weeks, it'll, be, it'll affect me. And it's just like, this movie is so much, uh, there's so much more to it, obviously. But just that was one of the things I was thinking about last night after I watched it was just how important it it is to to always treat every moment in your life with a certain, you know, not everything you do is important, like going to the shops. But, you know, when you smile at someone that uh, smiles at you, or just, you know, like, a, you know, the ch- checkout person at the grocery store says, good morning, how are you? Just say, yeah, I'm good, how are you? Like, rather than just blowing it off because you don't have the energy because you haven't had your coffee yet. You know, every every everyone's just trying to get through. It's just, I was thinking about human interaction for some reason last night so much more after this movie. Um, and it's something I do. Well, and that's a a good thing. Yeah. I think that's a great thing. I think that's what he was maybe setting out to do. I don't know what he was setting out to do. I mean, we, no one will ever, I mean, with how that movie plays out and everything that happens, who knows exactly what he was trying to do, but my personal takeaway from it is, is, yeah, it's about humanity. It's about how close we all are to losing it i think like losing everything we have just for like like julianne moore's character getting all of those pills for a dying man but also for herself kind of because she wants to kill herself but whatever (laughs) yeah those pills are fine if she wouldn't have drank with them but whatever um but like just her like blowing up on that guy it's like it's not really her fault that guy's intruding on her life it just shows how like and it's not really, you know, John C. Riley's fault. Well, I, I brought up John C. Riley without knowing where I was really going, but it's not really the coke addict's fault that somebody knocked on her door, especially a police officer, just because mm. she has her music loud. Yeah. So it's just this movie's basically existentialism run, run amok which I think everybody can really enjoy, especially in this mo- in these moments. And that's kind of like really why I picked it, especially for the, you know, this will be the biggest spoiler alert, but the frogs, I, I still think the frogs are like the crescendo of the movie. Oh yeah. And uh, the frogs raining down and it just, it makes everybody reset. It makes everybody go, Whoa, it makes mm-hmm. everybody, um, the cokehead, And I wish I knew her name or even the actress's name, uh, but, uh, character, I, name, I, I, character names, Claudia. It's yeah, the younger the gator, the young gator. Yeah. Like her and her mom coming together. Like the frogs like bring everything it sets everything square. Yeah. And to me, that's kind of what the coronavirus is doing right now. Is that we're all stuck in something together, which is what the frogs are in that movie, is we're all they were all they all had to go through something together yeah. and kind of like evaluate what the what life is after that happens. And so that's what that's why I picked it. Yeah, honestly, that's a great, great way of uh, a great metaphor for what the moment we're living in is. Yeah, the, the frogs do. I mean, you see um, the character of uh, Donnie, who's the former child quiz show star. Um, brilliant. William H. Macy. And plays it quite brilliantly. Um, oh, amazing. I, I love William H. Macy and whatever I've watched him in. And I haven't actually, I don't think I've watched much with him in it for a while. And so it was a nice, you know, pleasant thing to go back to and see him in a role. He plays he, such a rough guy in this it's just tough yeah it's tough to see yeah it is hard to see because he's he's got the giant check that he won as a kid on the wall that actually didn't get spent by him at all and you know hundred thousand dollars yeah and he's i mean hundred thousand dollars in um 
Well, he would oh, he would have won it in the sixties, right? So like that's yep, yeah, that's a big money back in the sixties, and his yeah. parents blew it all, and he's and so he never got to enjoy the fruits of his the only thing that's ma- that's made him defined as in, as far as the public view and what the, he feels defines him, and well, it's he, what defines him. He yeah. knows everything. Yeah. I mean, he gets yeah, so they, whatever. He's so. I just said I didn't want us so, to be a dude he, podcast, and I called you dude. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and Siri heard, heard it as well because she's just gone. Hey Siri, uh, <laughs> God damn it! Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna happen in every pod because I have the phone near me for emer- like anything that happens in like you know emergencies, and it's there. So. I'm fine with it. It happens to the best of them. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, he's uh he's he he says he's so smart but so stupid, and uh, you know, and it's like I not that I think I'm. Anywhere nearly as near as smart, but sometimes I f- you you have that futile thing inside you where you think I could do be doing so much more, but I'm so stupid, and I feel like that's just such an existential crisis that we all have sometimes. Um, and he's going through that, and he's and but he and the thing is, he has actually achieved something. Not many people. He's still the record holder at that point, and by the end of the movie, I guess he is. Well, and still the record. Yeah, holder. Yeah, p- pending whatever decision gets made between the adults and kids that almost fought in that show. Uh, Let me just say right now, fuck that fat kid. Yeah. <laughs> forever. Then, and the girl too. I don't even not a big, fan, not a big, fan, fan, not a big fan of Luis either. Though on the other side, just fucking yelling at kids. <laughs> great, great. Uh, Luis Guzman, amazing yeah. in another Paul Thomas Anderson film, which he always is amazing in. He's such a good. And it's, this is the era where Paul Thomas Anderson was using all, and I mean all of the same actors in all of his movies, and. Yeah. I love it. It's fun because yeah. they're great actors. Yeah, and it's great when directors. I like, I like when you have go through a director's filmography on Wikipedia, and there's a specific section for frequent collaborators because they have that kind of relationship with um, with the uh, Hollywood crowd or whatever it is that they they have their trusted guys, and that's I, I do enjoy that kind of relationship in movies as well. I mean, you, Coen's Tarantino, yeah, Pete, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, they all have that. Like, yeah. And that's what, then it results in great films. Yeah, yeah, because there's a trust that builds there too. Um, it's you know filmmaking, it's not breaking any news to say it's a collaborative process. So <laughs> it's. Uh, I know the, that the Bill best, Murray the, said maybe we talked about this in the Rushmore podcast. I don't, I don't think you would have said this back then, but right now, um, Bill Murray's told Wes Anderson that it's an automatic yes for yeah. whatever Wes Anderson wants him to do, and so like, I think Paul Thomas Anderson has some of that leeway with a lot of the people that were in this film. And yeah. um, I think this is honestly his best cast that he's ever put together as well. Yeah, that was some... I mean, it's it's crazy, even in the smaller roles, some of the big actors that were there. Like, yeah, I mean, I was just like, you know, the the um, uh, the scuba diving... Um, Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt yeah. at the start. I was like, God, that's Patton Oswalt. So, yeah, poor, poor, poor bloke. Um, yeah, I guess... These things happen. yeah. And that's what this uh, happens. Yeah, I was gonna. You were talking about the frogs and everything that comes together from that, and it's great. Like the film starts, and I texted you after the start of the film, saying how well it starts with the um the narrator talking about all these different things that happen. Um, very original yeah. way to start it as well. And, um, yeah, and you don't. Very, and you, yeah, and you kind of thinking like, what is this? And then once the film starts for a while, as you as someone who was first time watching it, I was trying to catch up with everything that was going on, try to find the themes. And it really like it's, 
it doesn't seem like anything until it is everything with the frogs coming down and then and everything comes together in that moment where it's like it's this whole collective conscious thing that you know everything these things happen but then everything happens for a reason kind of thing and it's just and I'm not even sure so PTA was going for anything exactly definitive on the subject he was just saying that there is there is greater things happening than you yourself but then there's also these things that happen and i was just i'm still my brain yeah (laughs) Yeah, audio medium but shay's just shay's just uh my i was looking for a pen because i wanted to write down stuff that i wouldn't forget because that's what i do all the time on this podcast is like like you inspire my brain and then i forget it and then i'm just like miller high life (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Miller, <laughs> we were trying to do Sam Elliott impressions off there, um, but y- yeah. y- you go ahead. I was just I was starting that point, but you go ahead with what you were thinking because it's it is such a no. Continue it because now I've already lost it again. Right. See, this is why I need a pen. But it's like go yeah, just finish your thought process. It is such a like the f- the frogs coming down. Like I love because everyone else is taking it as like this crazy thing that's happening because we don't they don't understand what's going on because they don't have the the context of understanding these phenomenon that however rare they are that do happen. Um, you can look on And frogs raining down have happened three times in the last decade. I looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, I looked it up through Reddit on Wikipedia, yeah. but yeah, they but then, said it's real. Yeah. And then and Stanley sitting there in the library, just watching it happen, going, these things happen. Or this, this sometimes happens. I can't, I can't remember the exact quote that he says, but he's just looking at it very like, Kind of, kind of like he's smiling and kind of amazed at it happening, but he just says that this happens, and it's like because he does it, he has obviously he knows everything, and he's like, yeah, I know that this happens. So this isn't a cra- while it's crazy to see it happening, it's not a crazy phenomenon because it can happen. So you shouldn't put any import on its greater, uh, yeah, greater impact on everyone as far as you know whatever high powers stuff. And you can we can t- the, the Exodus eighty two eight two um, stuff that's in the film is um, interesting as well, but. There, right. But, but yeah. then there is every every situation that happens outside of that with the other characters in this film that the frogs impact fundamentally change their lives as well. You've got you've got the mother of Claudia um, getting back somehow through all of that to um, reconcile with her daughter. You've got uh, Jimmy uh, John C. Riley's cop um, stopping and turning around. The the frog knocks uh, Donnie. William H. Macy. Yeah, William H. Macy's Donnie off of the the pole and and cracks his teeth that he was so desperate to get his teeth that didn't need which didn't need to be fixed. Yeah, but he was and but then it's like it's kind of woken up this moment inside of him that he's just like maybe maybe I just this isn't the right way. And then but then also Jimmy, who at the start of the film he has his narration like John T. Riley's cop about how he's trying to work out the line between doing what's right and doing his job as a cop. You know, he his his idea of being a cop is that you need to expend justice where it's needed but then sometimes justice is helping people as well and he's he's been battling with this the whole film and then he finally who do you forgive yeah and then yeah the end in this moment he realizes and as donnie's sitting there because maybe before the frog started coming down he was just going to arrest donnie because he's breaking in but then he, he pulls him to safety under the uh, gas station um, awning or whatever it was and they have a conversation while the frogs are raining down around them, and and he d- discovers that this is his moment to expend justice, but in the right way, because he doesn't have to arrest him. He just he just says no, return you know return the money. Um, and he helps him do that, and and he's finally found his place as a police officer, even though he's obviously going through his own shit with the gun that rains down next to him as well. 
and then he yeah it's it it's quite amazing how it all comes together in that sense um obviously his intent with writing the film because as i said before a, a brilliant screenwriter but as a viewer a first time viewer last night watching it it was uh, just so crazy wonderful to watch a film play out this way like as yeah as people like you and me that watch a lot of films and watch a lot of forgettable ones as well it's it's a true pleasure to watch films that um like this that come together like that as well and 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 make you think as as i've already said in this podcast already i was thinking a lot last night about different things so yeah yeah i mean beyond what we've already talked about i and beyond talking about um i think parents are and especially fathers and i said especially because i'm from nebraska but uh <laughs> especially <laughs> fathers are um under the microscope in this and i no, we'll, I know we will get to that because it is the cornerstone of this movie and Paul Thomas Anderson had a real rough relationship with his parents and you can see it in all of his films, at mm-hmm. least the early ones, um, with Dirk Diggler and his mom. Um, I think that's a pretty verbatim situation that happened with him and his mom um, early on mm-hmm. when she's taking him out of the house. But uh, it's clear that Paul Thomas Anderson didn't have the best relationship with his parents in this. And like I said, we'll get to that. And I had a point to make, but now that I've talked about the parents, <laughs> <laughs> that's what my mind is on. But yeah, again, I just think the frogs, it's, it's just a moment where everybody can just, everybody's so high strong and everybody's so, so close to breaking and everybody basically has been broken at that point. Um, whether it's Stanley, John C. Riley's cop character, um, I'm sorry, I don't know the characters' names, but <laughs> I think it'll actually make it better to uh, just reference them by char- uh, actor name for me, at least. Um, yeah, yeah. But the cokehead, and that's what I'll call her. That um, I just think the frogs were good for everybody because it's just a reset button. And um, going into it, Paul Thomas Anderson said he didn't know anything about Exodus eight two or eight. Dash to uh, whatever, Chapter however two. you say. Fucking Bible shit. Chapter two. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know either. Um, and that's cool if he did, but like even I knew that, and you and I both knew about that. And neither you or I are very religious by by any standard, yeah. <laughs> especially a Western religion. And um, I still knew about the frogs raining down, so I don't mm-hmm. know if I necessarily believe Paul Thomas Anderson when he said he didn't know about the frogs raining down. Look, he was doing a lot of cocaine at the time as well, so who knows <laughs> what was coming out of Yeah. Right, and he also said he wrote himself into a corner on how to end this because he had written such a brilliant film that he needed, you know, almost something crazy to happen that a, involves all, ca- of these, all of these people. Yeah. It's kind of a, it was kind of a cop-out, but it's also like, beautiful at the same time especially now in 2020 with the coronavirus going on where everybody has to slow down and everybody has to experience the same thing together and the point of the film that he's trying to make is that we're all human and we are all so close to losing it and we're all like all it takes is this one little thing and then we're all of these characters yeah and as you said before even philip yeah Yeah. go ahead yeah the front like yeah the frogs are essentially the uh, coronavirus of our time of the, this movie's time in the sense that it it does bring everyone to a stop even if it's for you know f- 10 minutes instead of two to three months at that ongoing at the moment um yeah everyone, two to three months in 2010 is the same as 10 minutes in 1990 oh wait i mean the reverse <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. I uh yeah, and the, you, even the other characters that have their moments. Um, and we haven't even we haven't even mentioned Tom Cruise's name, which he. Um, oh my god! <laughs> we're half an hour in. We're just getting to him. This is gonna be a three-hour podcast. I'm telling you, <laughs> well, you gotta see your mum because it's Mother's Day. But yeah. uh, happy Mother's Day, mum. She, I don't think she. Listens I could talk <laughs> about this shit, this movie forever. Like I was like, like every podcast we do, I'm worried about like, oh, what are we actually gonna talk about? And then we get like an hour in, and I'm like, I could talk about this for the next week. Yeah. So, especially Magnolia, because we haven't gotten into anything that I thought we were going to talk about yet. So, well, here's your chance. What's it, what? What? I've talked at length about a random thought I had at probably eleven o'clock last night after I watched this film. So, as someone who's seen it a few times, like, I guess with the most recent watchings, because we we always change we change as people between film viewings as well, but. What does it mean to you in the sense of? Uh, I know you said it always; it often makes you numb, but I know there's more to it than that. In the sense of how it makes you, it's it's yeah. I didn't feel that way this time, obviously, because I knew what I was. I think this is probably the fourth time I've watched this, mm-hmm. and um, the like the middle two times were like in fragmented pieces where I'd stop it and like maybe pick up on it in a, in a day or two, which really yeah. allows you to process stuff, but like it doesn't hit you as hard. So last mm-hmm. night I just watched all of it, and it didn't hit me as hard because I knew it was coming, but it also didn't hit me as hard because it just felt familiar, I guess. Yeah. In a way, and what really stuck out to me was just like, again, I'm just going to hit on this the entire podcast, but it's just how close all of us we're all built into these people but we're all like all it takes is one little thing and every single person in this film experiences of one little thing or one big thing um as in regards to julianne moore you know a person that well it seems like a small thing but it is a big thing a loved one dying Mm -hmm. um john c Riley losing his gun um the coke addict i'm sorry i don't know her name it's another three named uh, person but uh and she was a big actress in the 90s but uh her father coming over and then does like all these things it's it, everybody's so close that all it takes is one of those things to really just wreck their lives but all it also takes is one big moment that we can all share together or experience together and suffer through together kind of like corona or frogs falling where i'm sure people died in that because I mean, it's scary. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, <laughs> John yeah. C. Riley's driving and like... Well, we see the ambulance that... ambulance that Julianne Moore's uh, character is... Right, and uh, it's not all happy endings in it. Yeah. By any means. I mean, she gets... In, a... in fact, I would say there's no happy endings. Oh, it's, is it endings or is it just... Uh, that's the other thing. It's like you... I mean, Paul, uh, Anderson himself said that he wrote himself into a corner and had to end it somewhere. And that's a fundamental issue with writing screenplays sometimes is that you're you're trying to write a story that has an ending for a lot of things, especially in movies like this, you're writing about people's lives and unless everyone dies, their lives are going to go on after the film. So it's not like it's an ending. It's more just a... a ca- ca- I love stories like that. Yeah, a cataclysmic shutting off point that you can close off this particular moment in their life, but then you need to kind of show that there's going to be something happening afterwards. So it is hard to write endings that make sense as an ending for the film while also showing some showing that things can move on as well. Um, but I hate that. Yeah. I hate that <laughs> idea because so many like movie, like so many scripters and so many movies legitimately just like go for the easy, happy ending. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's happy. And 
so nobody has to remember that those lives still go on. Mm. That's what Thomas uh, Pinchon does so well with his writing, which I know we were talking about this off air, so yeah. now this sounds crazy that I'm bringing it up right now, but the author, Thomas Pinchon, like, what well, he does any, so well is he brings Anderson's all these parts to, in. Yeah. He bring, yeah, and he's close to Paul Thomas Anderson because mm. Paul Thomas Anderson obviously took influence from him and uh, actually adapted one of his... Um, books inherent vice which you might have just said but i don't know yeah that's what i was um, saying sorry i didn't mean to cut in over the top <laughs> no i was cutting in but uh i think paul thomas anderson really took from pinch on how much of a story like how much of a story you can tell and at the end you can just leave it and just leave it it doesn't have to have it doesn't have to be wrapped up in a sad ending or a happy ending it could be wrapped up in an ending that's infinite yeah. because nobody knows what happens. And I think that's the most effective storytelling tool in 2020. Mm -hmm. Not that this movie was made in 2020 or that I'm even talking about 2020. I think it's the most effective storytelling tool is to leave something open for all of the people because yeah, we've all read stories and we've all been, we've all expected to end up happy and ended up sad and we've all expected to end up sad and end up happy but we like we're not prepared as humans to end up in the middle but the middle is where everybody lives the yeah. middle is where magnolia is the middle is despite what all of these people in magnolia are and how successful or unsuccessful they are they're in the fucking middle and we're all experiencing it. You have highs and you have lows, but you don't have the extreme high or the extreme low. It's all this roller coaster. And this is what Paul Thomas Anderson did. And that's why I think, of course, right there, as I'm making my point, um, I think when he said he wasn't going to make a better film than this, <laughs> that he was right. I think he captured humanity at least at, like, Again, he was 30, and I would guarantee that he thinks he's made better movies now. But, you know, you and I are pretty close to 30 right now on the upper side. But uh, I think if we made this, we would say, yeah, I can't imagine making anything better. Yeah, because capturing human emotions in moments like that, because it's not like we're talking about people that are uh, beginning of life and end of life and in between with all these characters you know you've got a couple of the characters dying of cancer or whatever um you know jimmy gator uh, uh earl partridge um tom cruise's frank mckay's uh earl yeah. yeah his and his i mean his connection was his his company was the production company of jimmy gator's show you don't see any other connection as far as them meeting up but there's just these little connection threads throughout the film um you know they're, they're both on the at the edge and end of their life and they're fucking miserable <laughs> like you know I, I mean obviously dying of cancer is going to be a miserable experience anyway but they're miserable for reasons beyond that you know they've got regrets and some really deep dark secrets that are um, somewhat unforgivable um, for some of the characters uh, that they're dealing with and beyond the fact that they're rich and famous and have had wonderful lives on the exterior these deep dark secrets are eating away at them and have fundamentally made them pretty miserable otherwise um obviously like jimmy gator's character is doing a kid's quiz show and he's just drunk to, he has to get drunk to go into doing it because he's just everything about life has just come into this point that he's just he's just miserable and um 
And he's being eaten up. But are you that he's eating drunk because he knows he's about to die? I would say, but, but if you they knew, don't really if you, like establish you, that, he could also be getting because that's what you think when you're watching it. Yeah. Also, you find find well, out. I, that I think it's like a pedophile, basically. I think that's so. part of it. It's like if he was, he might have been getting, he might have had a few drinks before his show because he's about, he's dying of cancer, sure, but he's dying of cancer and being eaten, being eaten up inside, both physically and mentally, because and, and, all of these things, these sins of his past that he can't he's he's trying to cover he's trying to get through the last vestiges of his life with like this thing these things eat that have eaten him up inside ever since they've happened surely obviously he does the confession to his wife afterwards for part of it um and then but he goes to kill himself yeah because we're talking about the frogs yeah wiping the the slate clean for everybody the frogs don't allow him the easy way out no no they don't the frogs are not and yeah, the frogs are like a moment of clarity. Is yeah, is I mean, it's gonna. It, he deserve. Yeah, he's he, trying to give himself the easy way out, and he's probably gonna burn to death in that house instead. He's gonna die anyway. Yeah, but painfully. He's gonna slowly. die of cancer anyway. But yeah, he's probably gonna get burnt in smoke inhalation and all that stuff. Because what is it? The gun that he's no. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say the gun. Like the frogs come through the skylight as he's about to blow his brains out, um, and knock the gun sideways so he doesn't actually shoot himself but it blasts the tv and sets and that, a fire starts and i think that's the last time you see him is that the fire started in the house and my my takeaway of it was from my first viewing is that he's gonna he's gonna die but it's gonna be slower i don't think he, i don't know if he gets out of there my takeaway is that he's gonna have to survive because he's gonna have to like live like he's gonna have to face the the sins that he made yeah possibly uh, yeah that like i I view the frogs as everybody getting a clean slate and the shit that he did, you can't get a clean slate for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess I just, when I see a fire starting, I was just thinking there must be some more reason behind that. But again, this movie, there's no right or wrong. There's all interpretations. There's all, it's, it's a million things. I mean, we haven't even got into the characters. We, again, we haven't talked about Tom Cruise yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah again, we're like all this. <laughs> like, the motherfucker got nominated for an Academy Award for this role. <laughs> we haven't. Could have won, arguably. Yeah. I, I haven't. Let me. Um, when we're on break, I'll look up. Uh, yeah. That year, but yeah. Uh, he, he, he was Tom Cruise unreal. I mean, everybody is though. Yes. Yeah. That I think takes away from his performance is that every sing- single actress. Summer Julianne Moore might be a little over the top. No, I might I, be a little over the top. I I when she lost her mind at the uh the pharmaceutical clerk. Lose her mind clerk. twice. Though. Yeah, uh, but the pharmaceutical clerk. I I think it's just someone that's. I didn't mind the 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 scene with the barrister, the lawyer. Uh, that was interesting. But then well, it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah, but, but then yeah, the scene with the, you. the pharmaceutical. No, fuck you. <laughs> the scene with the pharmaceutical clerk, I found quite powerful. I was like really taken by that because we've all felt what it's like to be judged um in public and not be uh, unsure how to deal with it because people people don't know your story so they don't know why they're just judging you from exterior circumstances and she's she just loses does what we all probably want to do sometimes and and says don't fucking judge me when you don't fucking know me and in short she does it obviously a lot better which is why she's paid the money and i'm not um i was like don't look at Fucking drugs. Give me my yeah. drugs. Like, Especially like when you, 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 do you do your fucking job. And I know pharmacists. Uh, pharmacists do have like a obligation to 
to make sure things are all above board when they but the the guy was well he was well out of line he's just the way he's he's straight up saying oh this is you don't want to do these together and you know Right. Yeah, it was, it and was way out of line. And, and extremely not realistic, yeah. but I, maybe it happened back in the 90s. Like, now if somebody told me when I went to get my pills, like, like tried to talk to me about them, I'd be so caught off guard. Yeah, yeah. And obviously no one ever has, because that's... It's not yeah. professional So it's not... All. Yeah. Again, it's how close people are. Like, Julianne Moore is holding it together as much as she fucking can. <laughs> like, she's hanging by a thread mm-hmm. and the dude is yanking the thread yanking the thread yanking the thread and she accepts it yeah the, th- the sweater is barely there and then he comes up one more time face to face and call it and then somebody calls her lady and that's the end of the thread and that's how it works with human beings yeah we're pushed to a point we're yeah. pushed to a point and there is a breaking point and in every single character has it Every single character has it in this film, even the bad ones. Yeah, I mean, we all have a powder keg inside of us of things that are building up, you know, good and bad moments in life. Sometimes it's built up more than others. And, and, and if you're having a particularly bad day, it doesn't take much of a spark to, like, you know, the fuse gets shorter and, um, and the spark gets closer. And that's, that's kind of how everyday life as a human being is. And we've all got to, and again, going back to what I said at the start of the film, that's kind of what I was thinking about last night is like, I never know what kind of day someone else is going through when I run into them. So, and sometimes I'm having a bad day and I don't do, do my best job of being a fellow human being to others. And I feel bad. I, I think about it a lot. Sometimes I, if I've had a, if I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that's the point of this movie. But. No, it's not, but it's just part of, that's why it's so such a deep film is that there's so many things that through writing a film about, you know, reckon, you know, family, familial relations, as far as like, you know, people like broken families and, and childhoods and whatnot, he's, tapped into some deeper sides of humanity about how we treat each other just through interactions as well um and that's just a random thread that my mind went on last night obviously um a six pack of guinness while i was watching the film helped help generate you know open the mind a bit for it and but yeah i was yeah i was going down some different threads last night and just made me think a lot about that but yeah that scene with her was so powerful and and I found and I found myself really. I, that was one of the scenes I remembered from the film so much after watching it was just her breaking, breaking down. It's young, you know. It's Definitely young. not me. I don't know why it just affected me, and maybe it's because I work in customer service, and I've not I've not been that much. At, like obviously that guy was way out of line, but yeah, those kind of situations are. It's very easy to say the wrong thing when you're. I had a I had a customer that. Um, that uh, just there's a random tangent on this podcast for just a minute. Um, we have into uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so into this right now. Look, this will have, probably be twenty. <laughs> uh, we we have uh, we have bumper bowling at the bowling alley. I help manage with my family, obviously, but the bumpers aren't really designed for uh, the kids' bumpers, like to help assist kids to learn how to bowl. I never had one as a kid. I didn't know they existed, so I learned to bowl by bowling gutters. What? Until I didn't. I ne- I've never used bumpers in my life. That's just. Um, oh my god! <laughs> Bragging, humble brag. <laughs> uh, my brother kicked my ass in Wii bowling the other day. I felt terrible. Um, Brian, he's, he, he's good at both computers, computer bowling and real bowling. Two hundred games either way. He's but, also better at Legos than me, which yeah. I don't accept. <laughs> but I'll try. Yeah. Anyway, this this lady comes up. They're part of a group that's been in. They've been having a few beers, whatever, having fun. But kind of like on the more affluent side of life, from the outside, they're all wearing the 
they've been out wine tasting before they've come to us, which is always something that we worry about a little bit. But being in a wine region, we have to deal with it. She comes up and <laughs> she comes up and asks for bumpers, and because there's a couple of like adult, like a large group of adults with the must. I just said, who are the bumpers for? Like, because if it's for the kids, that's fine. If they're for some of the adults, I need to make sure that they actually need them. If it's not just for fucking around because some people just want to have the bumpers up so they can, they can zip the balls off them which breaks them and then we end up spending thousands of dollars fixing them right right, right, right. easily yeah. reason and i just said politely who are they for and she's why 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 are you asking i said well just if it's for some of the adults like they don't and they don't really need them and she said you're judging me i said i'm not judging you like what, what are you talking about and she starts swearing and runs off and i've got the video footage saved in that computer in case we had any legal issues about it and i'm just standing there like shrugging like what the hell did i do and then He's over there swearing about this guy that's judging her, and another bloke comes. She's got carpal tunnel. I'm like, I didn't fucking know. Like, and then it blows up to the point she's over there swearing about fucking Dave. Because in the conversations I've had with the other people in their party, they've said, "What are you? What is your name?" I'm like, "My name's David." Like, she's over there swearing about. And then the video footage you see her throw bowling shoes at us, and then she screams out the door. Does a burnout in her four wheel drive, almost hits a kid on the way out, and uh, and drives out. And like, it was quite dramatic. And that was just from me asking a simple, like, so from that, I think, but apparently she'd been having, the guys in the rest of the group said later on that, you know, she has some issues and whatnot. And I felt bad, even though she overreacted because I was actually just doing my job. It also made me, you know, you, you realize that I could have maybe done it a little, I, I wasn't doing anything wrong, but maybe I could have done it a little bit better because I was being quite quick with my questioning because I was just trying to get through it. And I realized you need to slow down sometimes and just, just a little bit more time and I may have been able to handle it differently and explain it better, even though I wasn't doing wrong. but And just that scene with her, Julian Moore, losing her mind made me think about those kind of situations where, and obviously the customer service representative in that situation was wrong because he was flat out just being quite judgmental. But Only a fucking pharmacist is a customer service agent. I think, like, yeah. if you're a pharmacist, yeah. just shut your fucking mouth and get the drugs. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> you did, like, everything. But, like... Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, the movie's from 21 years ago, but I can't imagine that being okay even then. No. Of somebody trying to talk to you about... Like a, like a doctor's aide, basically, as a pharmacist, trying to say... Oh yeah, talking about your drugs. Like, no, just don't even look at my drugs. Just charge me. Like, yeah. fill them up and charge me. Like, there's no supposed to be judgments here. There's not supposed to be judgment here. And the film is about judgment, kind of. Well, not even kind of. Uh, it's about judgment in a lot of ways. And yeah. um, how parents judge their children, how children judge their parents, how they treat them, um, all those kind of things. Like, as well as like fellow uh, adult like there's there's certain situations in the film where adult to adult they're having different judgments of each other but yeah it's it's everything's about you know miscom it's a lot of miscommunication mis misunderstanding of how human just human humanity works in many ways yeah I, yeah i mean but it's also about how we're all just connected and maybe there is something and i don't i'm this would be me putting words in the film's mouth, but what I take from it is that there, and I don't believe in any religion in any way um, at the moment. Um, David <laughs> knows that. Uh, everybody should probably know that, but uh, I do think there is an energy or a power just that's 
that's somewhere outside of all of us that's linking all of us Mm -hmm. together that and it's just something that we honestly can't even understand i know a lot of christians would tell me oh that's god and i know a lot of you know muslims would tell me that's allah and whatever no i think there's an intrinsic energy in life no matter what religion you follow that's connecting all of us and connecting you know beyond human beings beyond you know plants and animals and all that stuff i think there's just an energy that's going on and i think this movie really hints at it and it really like i don't know the first time i saw it i guess it scared me yeah I can that, yeah because you have i don't know if you had the uh i don't know when, when your first viewing was may have been different to mine mine last night wasn't i didn't i didn't have any great crisis of um existentialism to myself but i certainly was thinking, i was younger yeah i was i was, th- I was certainly thinking about because you know like yourself i'm like you know i'm not religious at all i don't believe in any of that stuff but i do still being of that mindset i do understand there are the greater things that i don't get and science doesn't get there are a lot of things that have happened in the world and the that we don't understand about the greater greater world and universe that we live in about how the all these things work and like you said they could yeah energies and 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 connections between humans i've you know, you've heard those stories about you know twins that have like a have a weird connection um heard a friend of mine um that he, you know well as well he's um got a twin sister and he's talked about when she's had sad things happen in his life he's just known of it even if he's not in the same room he's just known straight away just something is off and it's and it's not something that is easily explained it's just something that i find fascinating and like you said there's this film i think uh pta himself has said he didn't go into it with any there's no great religious thing that he's trying to do but there's just a theme there of um of a greater connection um you know cosmic connection between humans that and whether that's just a thesis he's putting out there to try and yeah, make people more understanding of their their own role in in this greater world that everyone is connected to. That we all need. If we all do a better job, then maybe it will be better for all of us in that sense. Which is pretty like to me is actually you know makes sense. But yeah, it's. I don't even think it's about that. I I I honestly don't. I don't think he he's trying to like preach a higher power. Like. No, that's not what well, I meant. Well, like, I know he's just, not trying to yeah. preach a higher power, but I don't think like. I don't think he's. I don't know if he's what he's trying to say exactly. It's just he's putting ideas. Maybe he's just shining a light on how insane this all is that we're all doing this together, and that like, yeah, everybody feels like an individual, but we all we we do all share everything, and so it makes sense that we would share a lot of stuff. Especially, he explains how things that seem like they couldn't have ever happened happen. Mm-hmm. He explains the in the first 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes about it of the film. He explains how things that you wouldn't think would ever happen do happen. So maybe there isn't a controlled chaos. There's nobody controlling it. It's just that there's so much going on that everything can be explained. And I think that's summed up when Stanley says the frogs are falling mm-hmm. or not, not the frogs are falling. When the frogs are falling, Stanley says, this is something that happens. Yeah. Because literally everything in the world that we can conceive will happen or could have already happened. Yeah. So I think that's what... It, and again, he was a guy that was our age or younger. 
<clears throat> younger for both of us, unfortunately. He's a guy making a movie about, you know, trying to figure out the world. It's like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't, and that's... But you yeah. can make it make sense if you throw all these characters, you know? And I think that's what he was going for. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Everyone takes their own meaning out of different meaning out of, you know, something like Frogs Falling. You might have had the uh, I can't I can't imagine what the post what post uh, days of the frogs falling would have been like in LA with you know media being like you know imagine that happening now like just that would be social media craziness with that many how many came down and how it happened. Uh, and the entire world, or is it just LA? I, I'm, I'm assuming it, just... it was. I'm assuming it was regional. Yeah, um, maybe it was All just. Right. Maybe it was just in the San Fernando Valley. It was know. a lot of frogs. It was, and if that had happened all over the entire world, then that's an entirely different movie again. Uh, but you can only imagine what the days like. You know, in, in the media afterwards, you would have, you would have had your uh, more extremist religions saying this is like you know this is literally Exodus eight chapter two whatever. Um, and then you would have had guys like Stanley out there going, "No, this just happens. Some this is something that happens, you know." So you can imagine, like, there is. I think that's whether it's something he was trying to say, or it's just a subconscious thing that's gone into the film that everything that happens can be different meanings can be taken out of it, um, depending on what your viewpoint is, and and who knows if it's you know some multiple way reasons could be right. Maybe who knows? It's uh, it's an unanswerable question at the moment, um, even now with some of these things so yeah i'm still working through it myself i'm like what 12 hours after finishing it maybe 15 for the first time so well and the fun thing that paul thomas anderson does with it is that you know if frogs were to rain down uh, and this is from reading online about yeah. stuff about the only times frogs have literally rained down on people and they've understood it is that it's from like a like a water spout of something yeah. Like a water tornado in some, like, picked up water in some swamp and mm. picked up all these frogs. And hey, maybe he's trying to. I mean, hey, I, n- I never thought. I want to. I want to see the swamp LA. that has that many frogs in it, though. <laughs> well, that too, and that's why I thought like that it happened all across the world. But mm. and so that's me like being naive, I guess, and not honestly seeing the film for what it was is oh obviously it's just happening in happening in la mm. like the frogs are raining down which could have happened because a hurricane happened which doesn't happen in la and i don't even i just don't think paul thomas anderson knew what to do with the film an amazing film that he had made with all of these characters that intertwine i just don't think he knew how to close it and he literally wrote it that way and it makes me love him even more honestly yeah. i mean that's what great writers like, do. well like, i could have like phoned it in but i did this instead yeah well and great yeah. writers even if they run, run into a moment of not exactly sh- knowing how to end it they will find a way um to do it in a way and you know screenplays are funny and uh, when you i'm sure when they these guys are writing these things they're looking at them thinking oh, this is you know on paper, it's just like, a, is this right? I've heard a lot of famous screenwriters talk in interviews saying, you know, we're just as we're just as nervous as you are because we don't know what this what this could be. We're writing this thinking it might be right, but it might be stupid. But just, and that's just you know the magic of the filmmaking process is that you write it and then you and then you hopefully get it on the screen right. And luckily, as a writer director, you have a bit more control over how your vision gets onto the screen as well. And he's he's just 
the way he married it up and paced the film and everything that led up to it just made it r- seem right. Um, you know, the music and everything and the, the way it uh, ebbed and flowed. The film had a lot of moments of conflict and then it would, you know, settle down a little bit and then it would get back to it. And then it slowly crescendoed up to this. It was like a three-hour music video in many ways. Um, oh, you know, literally. Um, and, uh, and, and, yeah, that ended I think... And, 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 Go ahead. And, music, and music is infor- important to Paul Thomas Anderson as a filmmaker is... Part of the process of um, infusing your film with some, with that energy and the, with the right energy and yeah, I mean he's the only director I think that could get away with having all of those famous people singing an Amy Mann song yeah. in the middle of it. That's literally telling the people exactly what the the film is about. I found that so beautiful. I read some stuff afterwards that some people were like, "Yeah, people hate it. Yeah, some I'm people like, hated it. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, he got away with it." That's why he's good, yeah. and that's why it worked. Is because I'm pretty sure I, I read mean, that Ingmar that, Berg. I mean, I'm pretty sure I could be wrong. It was like either Ingmar Bergman talking about the film or someone else talking about it. But it might be might have been Bergman that tried to do it and didn't couldn't couldn't make it work and cut it out of the film. And but Paul Thomas Paul Thomas Anderson did it and and just went with it and made it work. You know, you could have even filmed it and looked at it afterwards and, and had a moment crisis of confidence and said, "No, we're not going to put that in there." But no, kept it in there, and um, I found it. Yeah, this is a film that, like many others that we will talk about on this podcast, um, there's a lot of divisiveness to films like this as far as how people take them. But for me, that was a really great, a really great moment that kind of set up the third act. You know, really, absolutely. Like everything that happened afterwards felt so much more important and made sense because of that moment. Even though it's just singing a song because of the the song it is. It just made sense. I yeah. I I I, I mean the song I, says you got. I mean the song, and I'm paraphrasing, but the song by Amy Mann says you got you got to change it or everything's always going to be the same. And everybody's still doing the same shit at the start of the third act, and the frogs happen, and then mm-hmm. you know the song is kind of a reference for the frogs, in my opinion, of like of like showing like you need something to make you change or you don't necessarily need something, but something is going to change you mm-hmm. and you're going to come out the other side better. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, we don't know about Julianne Moore who flipped over in, in the ambulance, but I don't think she was that important, honestly, in the grand scheme of things. When we look at this film, I think she had already found her peace by saying that, you know, she married this guy for the wrong reason. Like she literally, like it was almost like her in a, um, again, I'm not very religious. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, when you talk to the priest, the thing, I don't Confessional. know. Confessional. Yeah. Um, oh, it was I almost think- like her, like her, like she had almost already confessed. Like when she's yelling at Seymour Hoffman's character, which Philip Seymour Hoffman, and we haven't even, God, God, oh, God. Yeah, second half, I think after, we have to get into the break, that, like how good everybody was. Yeah, as actors. I think after the break, we, we need that's to spend all some we time on Cruise and, and, yeah. But we have to talk about how good everybody was. But when she's yelling at him, it's like that's the end of her life. Mm-hmm. Like, she's like literally giving herself up. Like, all the, like, she doesn't want the money. She's already said that. She found love. She's done. She's okay. Like mm-hmm. her young, like that was a, you know, it's just um, I don't remember the point I was making, but uh, I think it. I think that wraps it up. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, we're just we've just hit an hour into the podcast, so it's probably a perfect time to take a break and um and uh, reset for the second half. We'll try to talk about some of the really great performances that this film had. Because did that make sense? What I was talking about. Yes, but it's probably making sense in the way that this film does to me, which is that everything is changing always. But yeah, it made, it made <laughs> sense. <laughs> It only makes so much sense to me in the moment, but yeah. all right. All righty. We'll uh, be right back after a quick break here and, uh, and get back into the second half of the Magnolia podcast. All right, we're back for the second half of the podcast on Magnolia, uh, the opus. <laughs> Great flick. From uh, Paul Thomas Anderson in 1999. Uh, we spent the first hour getting getting a little existential about it, and we 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 brought it up a little bit, but um, what we wanted to do a bit in the second half of the pod was really focus in on some of the performances and how they told the story of the film so well because... Tom Cruise is an actor that's done a lot of films and probably his career has been troublesome in, in, in many of the recent years as far as, as far as just doing some shit movies, really. Um, uh, but I think Scientology is maybe the uh, I mean, beyond that, biggest yeah. Yeah. red flag. He's still I doing, a, he he's still doing a lot of movies. He's still doing a lot of movies. He's just, he's, I mean, The Mummy was a big, big budget one that was meant to be big, but apparently he he demanded too many certain things that changed the, changed the way the film was structured and it just fucked it up completely and that film was a complete flop so that's more what i mean in that sense he's still doing the didn't film. need to remake brandon frazier's the mummy is amazing yeah and, and, and the mummy sequel is amazing yeah so i'm completely hmm i actually like brandon frazier more than tom cruise quite a bit yeah but in the sense of magnolia uh, tom cruise's performance was right let's go back to that because yeah. that's what we're podcasting about <laughs> Magnolia to the Mummy in two point five seconds. Um, yeah, Magnolia's Tom Cruise's performance in this film is, I mean, both there's two major parts. There's obviously his performance as his uh, his performance as the performing artist of Frank McKay, the the sex guru, hot guru. Yeah. <laughs> what, I'll say it. Yeah, I don't know. What's his I'm What's his like What's his line? Uh, respect the cock, tame the cunt, or something like that. It's. I'm not saying it on. Air. So I. <laughs> I'm just like, quoting the yeah, film. That that's, sounds like that's what it might be. Yeah. It's Look, something like that. He's like, he's an alpha male. Oh, like, guy that's trying to train guys to take control and, and and you know guarantee that they're going to take home women and and get all the pussy they want. Is is this is like I'm I'm sounding like quite crass, but anyone that's seen the film knows exactly what I'm talking about. He's paraphrasing. But it's so much of it is because of his experiences as a youth um, with an abandoned abandoned father and taking care of a dying mother that has infused him to to be this person to try and counteract the effect that this has had on him. He's trying to be the ultimate male because of the failures of the, male, the males in his life earlier. He's, he's like, you know, he's counteracting that with that, which is like, you know, a classic case of, of, of uh, you know, abandoned fatherhood in infecting your adult life and making you 
over you know overcorrect towards a certain path where you didn't because he, he's completely disrespectful of of females and uh, but he's just it's a real performance art to him to make obviously he's making money out of it too so job wise it's probably a smart move because he's uh he's he's making money and getting all these dumbass males that are looking for it and that are also probably possibly lost just looking for an answer and they see it in this they see it in this misguided misguided view from this guy that can perform well and tom cruise does a brilliant job of getting on stage and being the the uh, this guru of guru of sex that um performs and and with his long hair and his is um gyrating on stage and whatever and it's it's powerful his performance in that sense i already knew he would he'd been nominated for the academy award going into this film so it was kind of in my head to watch how he went but then the way the film ends with his his tears and his cry and that intensity that he has in those final scenes with his dying father on the bed that's what i i thought he'd been he was great both in those scenes on stage and then when he's in the interview with guinevere as well is quite powerful as well when she's she kind of cracks cracks open the um, the whole even before the yeah um but yeah that that ending scene clinched it like i was like all the way through i was thinking yeah you know he's he's good he's good probably deserved the academy award nomination then when he gets that ending scene that intensity he has uh yeah i was just blown away by it um but you know troublesome he's obviously a troublesome human being in the in his actual life as far as his um um high profile pontification about a um <laughs> a pyramid scheme essentially um but um his acting he's certainly he's always he's been a great actor for a long time and this film was was uh made his performance was amazing to me um and uh apparently he had a uh, abusive father in his so whether whether that came into it because he's obviously this film a lot is about um you know the failures of parent parenting and and whatnot and his life in real life had some of that in it in his in his early years and maybe maybe that's part of it. Maybe he's just a great actor, but it certainly felt personal by the end of that film. And that's what acting is, is making it feel real. And he, the way he's, you know, just through gritted teeth and saying, I'm not going to cry, I'm not going to cry. But then he starts crying and he's calling his father. He's already crying. Yeah, yes. yeah he's calling his father. You, know, he's, you prick, you fucking prick. And there's so much venom in his words. And, you know, we watch a lot of movies and see a lot of great performances. And so that... And often great performances um, across the board. It's uh, you, you sometimes don't remember specific moments that really stand out, but this that really stood out to me. Um, him at his father's bedside, and then you got Philip Seymour Hoffman um, in a in a underrated. You know, his his performance itself was quite great, and he's off to the side crying like he's just a character. It's amazing. Yeah, it's just it's an amazing entire, role for Philip. That, that entire sequence is just unreal. Yeah, I mean. You set me up for that. I mean, you set me up for that scene. It, it's just you can't even really describe it. Um, Phil, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's role. I'll take away from Tom Cruise for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Just because I will get to it, and because it is so powerful. But a lot of people would, um, I guess, misremember Philip Seymour Hoffman's role in this film, which is that of just a dep- and I almost said deprived but uh just you know a person I don't even know like wh- what is this guy he's a nurse and he's yeah. just lost I think he's actually just and- a caring I think he's just a caring nurse like he's, he's a, a good, good person, he's a, he's a good soul he also- in, he's a good soul in the midst of all this um 
he is. But it's also this thing where he's a great soul and like maybe we can lean on him as an audience, but he also takes the morphine pills from Earl and puts them in his pocket at one point, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, I believe, if I could be misremembering, but when I saw it, because Earl didn't want to take them, I thought, and he puts it, and he takes them and he puts them in his pocket. But also the the dirty magazines and stuff, which would have been like a big deal in the ninety in the late nineties, early two thousands, I think. Like him ordering those magazines, I think that takes away a little bit from what his character is supposed to be. Because I think Paul Thomas Anderson was trying to make him maybe a little bit more depraved, and so for the audience. Well, I wondered. I I wasn't exactly sure, but. Is he like? Is he ordering those knowing he might find a number for the? Because uh, you know, finding a phone number wasn't as easy. That is a great point. Yeah. I yeah, that's God. I read. You're I, probably. Right. I read an essay. I, I read an essay. I read an essay that questioned his character because it's like, is he just going to jerk off while this guy's dying? And I was like, he orders them, and then he. But then when you, he gets them, he immediately flips to a page. And, and, uh, and again, and like, again I'm, not, I'm not a smart person. <laughs> this is why I have a podcast with you. Because you fill me in on... I'm not sure. Like I've literally, I've literally watched it once and I just thought about that afterwards. I was like, because I'm watching it thinking, why is he ordering all these? Because why do you need more than one? Like, you know. <laughs> but... Um, God, that's a great fucking... God damn it. I I just assume, I just thought about it because then he fl- he finds Frank's ad in the in the magazine, which because obviously a guy that says respect the cop, you know all that that line. I'm not gonna I'm not not gonna drop a scene bomb more than once, um, because it is a, <laughs> just a completely disrespectful line. <laughs> but yeah, please don't. But, but he uh, he he yeah. find, he, know, is, he knows that he's gonna. My fault too. By the way, he knows that he's gonna find. He's probably gonna Fucking chance idiot. of finding that in the page because he then he rings that number. And, and the amount of time he spends on the phone trying to push through the salespeople trying to sell him stuff. He says, no, I need to get through to this. I need to get through to this. And he spends so much time on the phone and finally gets through and gets this guy on the phone to get come over, like, like Tom Cruise's Frank McKay, to come over and, and see his dying father and, and, and reconcile something, even though it doesn't change what's happened in the past. Um, there's a reconciliation there right at the end. Um, I think there's a record. I I absolutely do think there's. Oh yeah, I do too. I it's it's unfortunate. After you just blew my mind with that, (laughs) and me thinking that you need an like a co-host that would actually understand shit because they're not um, borderline moronic like myself. (laughs) Um, I think that uh, yeah. You just blew my mind with all of that. And um, <laughs> just, anybody who listened this far to this um, probably already knew what I what my mind just knew. But uh, I think. Well, I'm not. But saying, I will, you're, not, you're not like I, I. I read an essay online online earlier that said, "Why is this guy buying these magazines? Is it just like? Is it what? What is the reasoning?" So you're not you're not alone. And I'm not saying I'm. I'm just that was a thought that I had in my mind. No, I think that's absolutely right because it doesn't strike his character at all. And I'd love to. I'm gonna. It's one of the. I'm gonna try to access the screenplay later on. I should have read it before we. But I wanted to watch the film unfiltered from a screenplay. But I'd love to read the screenplay to see how it reads as well. Um, see how he directed the um directed on the page because maybe it was um maybe it was just happenstance that he was flicking through some dirty magazines because look he's just a guy no not at all in my opinion not at all now that you say that i mean that makes so much goddamn sense because 
it is a character which Philip Seymour Hoffman. Jesus Christ. God, right, Philip Seymour right, Hoffman can amazing. play a real dick in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, like, I honestly view him as a bad guy. I mean, he does play. Like, when, I'm, when I'm watching films. Yeah. But I he, mean, I watch him ha- as a great actor, mm-hmm. regardless. Um, whether it's a most wanted man, um, puncher. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson loves him. Mm hmm. But in every Paul Thomas Anderson movie he plays, he's the bad guy. Yeah. So. Yeah. Almost I don't know where I was going with that. So. This, well, Philip Seymour Hoffman was amazing in this film, Mike, in a role that was quite not quite as as uh, overstated as some of the, some of the others. He was um, when he's standing there and those tears start rolling when he's listening to uh, the conversation between Frank and his um, dying father Earl. Like, it's just. It's how, you know, that's him being affected by someone else's, again, like so much of the thesis of the film is that we're all interconnected to each other and our experiences and whatnot. And, you know, he's going through a fundamental moment that like every time a human experiences the emotion, even if it's not something you're directly emotionally involved in, if you experience someone else's emotional, great emotional moments, whether it's experiencing loss or or love or whatever you you are changed a bit by it as well and he's experiencing that just you know standing off to the side listening and crying because he's he's feeling the emotional weight of the moment that's gonna he's gonna remember that that character is gonna remember that for the rest of his life and and philip Seymour hoffman as a great nurse who you know he he the guy turns up for the shift change i think is what that was he says i'm gonna stick it out i'm gonna stick it out like that's going beyond the pale like you know and and as at a time when we should be appreciating all of our all of our medical staff across the world at, at the moment as well. It's just like these these people do often, you know, we've heard of stories of bad bad people in the medical profession as well, but there's a lot of people out there that go above and beyond the pale for, uh, you know, a job that sometimes it certainly doesn't pay enough quite often. Um, a lot of these people do go above and beyond for people that they, they just develop a caring, a caring for that they will go beyond their paycheck to make sure that the whoever they're caring for is going to, you know, even if it's just sitting by their side and making sure they get through, you know, he he gives the he gives Earl the cigarette and does right. the, and does the fake cigarette lighter click, and Earl kind of lifts it up and takes a you know doesn't even get it to his lips. Fake drag, yeah. It's just, it's just like they have this moment. Those moments are again. I talked about earlier the the writing of this film, um, how powerful each little moment was. You know, that's like that's a throwaway moment in many respects, but it's just so beautifully written and, and the character development that just is happening as you're going through that moment is just great. And Philip Zimmer Hoffman is just, his character is, uh, is wonderful. You know, it's just a caring nurse is what I take it as, but someone who obviously is human. And, and again, what the reasoning behind ordering the magazines, but he's just a great character and Seymour Hoffman, uh, you know, tragically lost to us a few years back, but, um, you know he's he's great in everything he does, and an, an actor that I know he's he's very much appreciated by the film world, but sometimes under you know a, a, in the greater because he's whether it's just he's not your prototypical leading man, he's o- o- often the often the the second or third one in a film. He's often a little bit underrated as well, but he's he was a powerhouse that I. It's just tragic we won't see any more films from him because um, he's he's always a powerhouse. Yeah, you remember him, you know. He's, yeah, he's unreal. I mean, I think, yeah, uh, I just watched uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, and he plays, he doesn't play a good person in that. He doesn't play a bad person in that. He plays a person. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, you know, I know you haven't quite seen that one yet, but no, uh, recommending that's why I'm not diving into it super hard. But mm. uh, he plays, I mean, he slays that movie. And the fact that we don't have him as somebody in movies like this for the foreseeable future is extremely depressing. Um, I remember watching the last movie that he ever did because my pops told me to like that he saw it and that I should go see it. It's called a most wanted man. He plays mm-hmm. a German, basically a German. I don't know what they would call it over there. Um, obviously, cause I don't want to use any Nazi. <clears throat> yeah. I probably shouldn't even said that, but, uh, like, uh, the CIA for Germany, he basically plays that character yeah. and the end of that film and him dying after it and the scene that it ends with is so just kind of the opposite of cathartic, but also cathartic at the same time. Mm. I don't know. Like, it, I don't know. It just hurts me to even talk about it because he's such a great actor and he's such a good bad guy. And I'm not going to say that he, is, he does. He has such a great range. His his goofiness. I don't know if goofiness is the right word, but he does that really well as well. Like he's his dramatic acting is so good, but then he's very comedically good as well. Like he has such a you know, and obviously a great actor having great range isn't. But there is a lot of great actors that can't do certain things well. But Philip Seymour Hoffman seems to be able to float, depending on what kind of film he's doing, right from the most dramatic moments that you could ever ask for an actor. And any and he is. A brilliant comedic. Uh, there's a random. Oh, what's the Ben Stiller Jennifer Aniston movie I'm thinking of? I think he's. Is it Along Came Polly? Along Came Polly. Is he the friend in that? Yep, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, he, and when he's just like when he's telling them he's shot, he's shotted, and he's explaining what a shot is. It's like I'm he fucking, literally I'm created fucking the term dying. Charge. Yeah, I'm fucking dying when I'm watching that. So that's like, but then like you're you're he's crying in, in this film, and and I'm like almost crying with him. Like so that's like just yeah. Great actor, and um, and obviously there's a lot of performances in this in Magnolia that sh- should be appreciated, and every one of them should be. But yeah, his his in particular is one that's maybe not one of the mainline storylines as far as the relationships between people are being reconciled. His his performance is quite um quite magnificent. Right, and I think they all are. Whether it's William H C Macy or William Macy, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I put too many initials in there. I don't. William H. Macy. William H. C. Macy, Esquire, the third. Esquire, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every, like, single person in this film, though, is so fit for their role. And I guess now that it's 21 years ago, maybe it seems like, oh, wow, all these famous people were doing this back, and back then they weren't famous. But, like, a lot of these people were extremely famous when they were filming. Like, Julianne Moore was extremely famous when she was filming this film. Tom Cruise was very famous. Yeah, well, Tom Cruise has been uh, around since the like mid '80s, you know. So, yeah, he was certainly. Yeah, I mean, high profile. William Macy uh, has been in great films, like maybe not mainstream films, but these are big actors who have been mm. in big films that were nominated for Oscars. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson got the best out of all of them. Um, honestly, I think. You can't deny the performances in this film. Yeah, and I think that's what great writers do is they, um, well, as Paul Thomas Anderson did, was write a great film. And obviously as a director, he can direct a great film. 
And that's how you get great performances out of it is you give give them the work on the paper that that works and then obviously the direction as well. But um, uh, I'm not sure whose performance I appreciated more. I think Tom Cruise is the one that, like, as a guy that's um, so much of a... I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's was one, but then Tom Cruise is an actor that often does... It's so minor. It's very much into, like, the action film world and stuff now and... And hasn't probably had that many great performances in that sense. I mean, I, there's some films that Tom Cruise has done in the last 10 years, 10, 15 years that I've loved, like Edge of Tomorrow is one of my favorite re- just movies to watch. Um, He's a good actor. I mean, and, and does a, does a, throw does a, the shit aside. Does a great, yeah, shit. he does great mainstream, mainstream easy flicks. This one, um, he does, he hits some emotional range that is quite raw, um, as all of them do. Like, even, uh, you know, John C. Riley is a guy that. I often see as just as stepbrothers John C. Riley, which <laughs> well, we all do. He's, but I think which he's is the it, voice fantastic. of reason in yeah. this film. He he kind of seems I think like he's the. I I think he says what the film stands for at the start and the finish. Yeah, I honestly do everything he says. And if you want to understand what this film is about, hear what he says to himself at the start and hear what he says to the audience at the end. Mm-hmm. And um, not literally the end. Because he's talking to um, Claudia. Claudia, um, but what he says to Claudia matters too. Yeah, what he says to Claudia is like the P.S. to the point of the movie, which I think the movie ends at the end of his. I don't know the word for it because I I didn't do acting, but <laughs> like when he's sitting in his cop car and just looking at him and he's about to roll away and he mm-hmm. and. Um, it's basically a soliloquy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking about it, but uh, everything he says in that soliloquy, which is very, very similar to American Beauty, which um, I can't believe you haven't seen. And the next time you ask for me for a movie, maybe I will say that because the <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe you hadn't seen Magnolia either. So I uh, forced you to watch it. So. <laughs> but I was they, happy, they I was, have sim- I'm very I'm very thankful for it. They have similar and it's not just cuz they were made in 98 99 or yeah. they were made in the same year or whatever. But uh to me they they have similar tones about humanity and what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And uh so I think both those films are great. And yeah. uh yeah, I don't remember where I was exactly going with this, but uh, oh, you're talking yeah. about John C. Riley being like the central kind of the, not the core of the film, and he's just kind of the central character. That's um, he's some, so he's so, like he's not. I wouldn't exactly say he's smart because as a cop, no, he's bad. He's a, he's bad, but he's like well, no, he's not. Is he bad though? Because he's not a bad person. He's not bad. He's not bad. I don't. But he's not good either. He's not good. The problem is he's. Well, I, th- I think he's fundamentally. A good I think he's per- the voice person. of reason. He's a good. I think he's probably a good person because he doesn't. He's not doing anything fundamentally evil, and uh, when he when he helps Donnie out of the rain of frogs, he he finally finds his. He's a he's a cop trying to find his place in this. And he's, he's lost. Yeah, and he's, he's very and he, lost. And he sees his line of work as a very honorable one. Um, as far as he should, but as but he also uh, sees maybe he, I don't know. Uh, but he also sees it. LAPD. <laughs> Yeah, he also sees but, it. Uh, well, he, that's the thing. He also sees his job as troublesome in the sense that finding 
the right balance of justice and what you should be doing in that job is fundamentally you can it's it's probably the fundamental problem with policing is it's never there's never a they try to find right. black, black yeah. and white areas and areas that are gray, which is what he's trying to find, and he does find it in that moment because he probably sh- he probably should be taking Donnie in, like with the black and white letter of the law. But he finds the justice in that moment as a teachable moment for as a human being, um, which is quite is quite a is quite a lovely scene because William H Macy is going through his own fucking crisis, um, trying to find you know he's he's trying to find love and he but he doesn't understand because he he's probably. A, they allude to the fact that his parents blew his childhood fortune from winning that show, but um, and that's really the only thing that's said about it. But if you, if his parents are blowing it, then they're probably just terrible parents as well. Like in the greater scheme of, it's like an well, illusion, just what, uh, an allusion to them. Just like with the kid, uh, what is it, Stanley? Stan- Stanley, um, yeah. He's going through the I, same shit. His parent, his parent is using him rather than, and yeah, there's what what you. And there's a lot of say. cyclical yeah. nature to this film. Yeah, there there really is. Um, there's you know if you watch it there's the storylines kind of they they go in a circle and they literally say it at a point um when william william h macy is at the bar Mm -hmm. and um i don't know what to refer to the other patron at the bar but other than the guy with money who was in um the burbs which is a great film that everybody should see as well but uh He's in a I wouldn't of, say great. He's in it's a, good. Yeah, that's but a, that's that a, that, era that's, of films, yeah. he was in it. But um, he says you're like the wheel and the spoke, or something. You're mm, the the spoke and the wheel. You're the stick, spoke and the wheel. Which I don't even, I honestly don't even know what that means now because the spoke, right, is part of the wheel. So you just go. Yeah, I guess the spoke is the structure of the wheel because without spokes, the wheel can't content, can, can't hold its structure. Right, but when I was younger and I first saw this film, what I took it as is like you're the stick and the spoke of the wheel. It's oh, like you're right. okay. everything from going. So I don't even understand that concept anymore. So maybe you can enlighten me. I, I don't, don't even know. know. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought that much about that conversation, to be honest. But if you like, a spoke, that's huge. Yeah, it, huge. it is. I meant like the the entire moment is a I've thought about, but the the spoke and the wheel thing is like, well, you're you're. It's like you're stuck to be this part in the wheel, which the wheel needs, but it's kind of like a, you could say it's a, it's an unrewarding symbiotic relationship because it's all, oh, absolutely. It's all, it's all yeah, needed, yeah. it's all needed, but it's not rewarding yeah. either because you're just doing the same fucking thing. Um, so you're not getting anything out of it, but it's also the wheel is what actually drives everything. So you're an un- underappreciated part of the wheel. The wheel needs you and you also need the wheel because then otherwise, I don't know, you could go... I don't know where I'm going. With this. No, you I'm do just, know. Yeah, that makes exa- that makes exact sense yeah. about his character. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it does. Yeah, and he calls it, and it's like, oh, you're just part of something that's like continues to roll on, mm-hmm. and you know, look at where you're at right now. But I think that also is a parallel to the entire film, which is that time, like, hey, if you have shitty parents, and your parents, whether they use you for money or use you for um and i don't even want to say it but you know what gator what gator did to his daughter and uh, perversions yeah yeah if you use all that stuff like you're just spinning that wheel to the next person Mm -hmm. because they were showing that was stanley and his father 
And Stanley did try to break the wheel. I love that. I was, I was hoping you were going to bring that up. Yeah. Well, and the frogs bring it about all of that. Yeah. And I tried to bring that up earlier is that I think it was the breaking point for everybody who needed something, mm-hmm. who needed something in the film. And there are people who didn't need a goddamn thing in the film and they shouldn't get any help. But there are people who needed help. And I think the frogs provided the help to the people who needed the help. And it was like a starting from square one for, for good people. And so if you're starting from square one with good and bad people, the bad people start below one and the good people start beyond that. And you don't even think about the bad people anymore. The good people, I'm sorry, I'm pontificating, but like, this is exactly what I wanted to have this podcast. This makes so much sense to me. And this is what this film means to me. So that's what I'm going for. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And that's a, it's a great way to bring the wheel thing into how the film ends because I do love, uh, you know, G- uh, the cop uh, Jimmy going back to Claudia after she's she's run out on their date and is like, if, "Would you hold it against me if I, you know, if you if you met me but then never see me again or whatever?" Would you object? Yes, Would yeah. It's, she, it's such a beautiful moment. I fucked up the line because I couldn't remember it exactly, but no, you should. But then he goes back and and she, I, I, there was one. One critic that said it's the first time you really see a genuine smile from her for the entire film is when he says his lines about you know I'm, I'm you know and it's quite beautiful uh, in that sense. So he's kind of what an ending. What an ending. Yeah, it is. But then so that's a breaking of the will moment there, and then you have Stanley walking into his dad's bedroom and saying you you need to treat me better, which uh, which happens before that. But yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just in what, the same we'll sequence. Go, yeah, whatever. It's the same sequence. Wrapping yeah. up, wrapping up the film. Yeah, um, and then his dad kind of says, "Go to bed." kind of like he's like no throw away and and the kid just sits there and says no you need to treat me better and and you see the dad kind of has this moment like this eye eye kind of thinking moment he says all right go to bed but you can see it's gotten through to him a little bit maybe and who knows you could say that a father with that kind of tendency is going to have issues throughout but hope you just it, it ends at least with the kid saying you need to treat me better and you hope going forward that um you know, Stanley's had a moment of realization that he's he he's smart enough to know he's being used the whole time anyway. But he's just he, he's he's also using it to his benefit because he knows if he breaks this record, it's going to be good for him too, probably. But without knowing Donnie, right? But he also pisses his pants because the adults, he, every adult in the room, won't fucking listen to him apart from when he says the right answers. And now he's correct. being listened to yeah. by an adult, yeah. as you would say in Australian. But <laughs> adult. Uh... <laughs> an adult. <laughs> No, I like it better as an adult. But uh yeah, exactly. Like he he's changing it. And the people are changing things. And like that's the biggest problem I have with people's interpretation of this film is that nobody changes and yeah, the wheel keeps spinning, but it's like no, the wheel keeps spinning and it can change. It. Yeah. I mean, we can look at greater change the wheel and the spoke. Like us like a part of a spoke of a wheel like, we can't control the wheel that's going. The wheel is beyond us. None of us are the wheel. If you're just a spoke in the wheel, then then be happy with it and continue to roll with it, but make sure the wheel keeps rolling in your favor. And yeah. I think at the end of this, well, the, oh, and wheels are, and wheels again, are, I can and, talk to you. Uh. And wheels also need direction, so it's like it's about finding the right direction too. Like, wheels aren't turning... Are not meant to be into turning. the best place. Yeah, like the, they're not meant to be yeah. tur- turning with no direction. They 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 always you know wheels are turning to go towards a destination in theory. Like whether it be a you know 
cars or bikes or whatever you're talking about or just you know metaphorical wheels there's all do, like they're moving in a direction um so that's kind of like you've got to be you've got to be the spokesperson for the direction of where that wheel is going rather than you know you can be a part of the wheel but make sure you it's it's um it's moving in the right direction really make sure it's moving in the right direction for you yeah and yeah. i think like and that's beyond this movie that's just me like talking you can say about, that about greater things talking like, about is like make sure like if you're like riding the I mean, rail yeah. or whatever you want to talk about like if you're like on a path make sure it's going in the right direction for you as a person yeah. like that that's all that matters and um again like i think this film is all about existentialism which is about you know you can we all control and maybe i'm completely wrong about this because i've read a lot about it and um they say I'm completely wrong about it because, you know, I I do, like, we're all in control of everything, every single move we make. But I do feel like there's a power, and it's not a godlike power, it's not a Christian power, it's not an uh, Islamic power, it's not a Judaic power. It's just, like, this energy of being alive that uh, exists. And so... Maybe that is what I think existentialism is. Even though we can all make our own decisions, there's still a power that is keeping us alive and making sure that whatever it is, I don't even know, man. Like, that's what this <laughs> is about. Like, I don't even get it. I don't get it. It's like, I don't it's like all in the know same what space. Magnolia you, is about. You, get, you feel like you get it, and then when you start talking about it, it's like, all these other questions kind of arise out of out of the discussion and and make you question everything basically, which is what it's it's what powerful filmmaking is. Is I you know I would love to make this film. I'm sorry, I'm going off I'm going off book right now, David. <laughs> of of our podcast, I'm going off. I would love to make this film because I would love to do what this film did to you and me. Yeah, and I'm speaking for you right now, and you can interrupt me for when I misspeak of us, but I would love to make a film for the people who don't feel like they have a place in society because of religion and the way, the way everything is built up, whether it's capitalism or religion, Mm -hmm. like this is what this film is about. It's about the chaos that is the, that all of us being together and that, the fact that anybody believes in anything, it all goes out the window once the big thing happens. And the big thing happened in this film. And the big thing is kind of happening right now. But certainly, the big thing, I was going to say. But you're... the big thing is going to be global warming here, too. And I don't yeah. really want to get that either. But because we're talking about a film. But, uh, like. Uh, but yeah, this film does end with a cataclysmic event that is is out of this is something you anyone in the film would have said we'd never think this is going to happen and even though people know that pandem- but this happens yeah even though we know people know pandemics could happen we never expected to be living in a world where all of our major sports were shut down cinemas and life in life itself was relegated to zoom calls and um you know social distancing and not not gathering in groups more than of more than two or ten where depending on where you are um you know like these things fundamentally change us and hopefully that Paul Thomas Anderson has some, there's a lot of dark things obviously happening within these characters in this film, but 
it ends kind of with the a lot of dark things happening within you and me david yeah. sorry maybe me more than you because you're a lovely person you're a lovely Boy, person none of, too, us are, none of us are picture perfect <laughs> yeah uh, uh, characters in a movie We're all and humans. that's what Paul Thomas what, Anderson yeah. does yeah his characters are so that's what's so great about them is each one isn't perfect even you know John C. Riley's cop kind of dismisses the kid who says I've just told you oh John C. Riley is not likable yeah. this yeah. film in my opinion but what he says at the end of it is amazing yeah. I think it's in it, like that oh my god I can't even put it into words like that is exactly what humanity is in a nutshell. Yeah. Is it like you can't put it into words, but I'm sure there's plenty of people that you think don't really you're... like it, but yeah. it makes sense. I'm sure there's plenty of people that you and me have run into in that bar at the O bar that think we're terrible people too. So. Oh, well beyond that. Well I'm beyond just a... the O. Uh... <laughs> I'm just thinking about the people that I, I yelled at in that bar for. Being... Oh well, they're probably dead now of the coronavirus, <laughs> and that's fine. But uh, yeah, I'll yeah. get canceled. I'll get canceled via yeah. this. My it's big just, thing is every, like, everyone's hey, this perspective is a, of people if is you're different. This yeah. deep into this, and you're listening to me talk about this stuff, then guess what? Buckle in because we're gonna keep talking about it <laughs> because it is important, like to me. Like it, this movie is so about just people trying to hang on and people finding a life raft in love and like we did this with um jojo rabbit last week which Mm -hmm. i think love was the the big um centerpiece of and this is the same thing like it's crazy when we do these podcasts week to week and we pick these films and i keep seeing like I find a similar through line to him and it's love. Mm-hmm. That's like the through line, which is shocking because there's, a, there's no love in this Wallingford apartment. <laughs> <laughs> love between a man and no, his bubble heads. But it is, but like, that's like, that's what everybody needs in this film. Mm. William H. Macy, I think says he screams. I mean, the thesis of the film, the film is said by the narrator. I think William H. Macy says, I have love to give, but I don't know where to put it. Mm-hmm. And all every single character in that film feels that way. Yeah. I guarantee it. Whether they say it or not, whether they feel it or not, whether it's Julianne Moore, she she realizes she has love to give to that dying man. Yeah, dying when, man when, when realizes he, when he, can't he has love it. to give. Yeah. The dying man realizes he has love for his ex-wife, who he can't give that love to. Philip Seymour Hoffman has love to, you know, a person who won't really respect his love because mm. why would he? And it it goes on and on. Thomas Cruz, uh, Thomas Cruz is what I just said. <laughs> but Tom Thomas Tom Cruise doesn't like Thomas Cruz has again. I just said it, <laughs> and I don't understand why I just said that. Tom Cruise has love for his dying father Earl. But has nowhere to put. Like that's what this film is about. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so good. I can't. It makes me mad. It makes me mad how good it is because I can't break it down as much as I wanted to, want yeah. to. Yeah, I mean we've done almost an hour and forty now, and it's like 
I think we've done a really good job of breaking into the film and finding new ways, like ways for people to understand. Eighty minutes of me was yelling into this microphone about <laughs> I don't even remember. I don't know. Eighty minutes of it, just me yelling into the microphone. <laughs> it's um, I think it's one of those films that importantly is gonna <laughs> is gonna be. Oh, oh, oh God, was that a white claw going down? Yeah, it was empty. We got a white claw down. We got a white claw down in the city. Um, this is what I was trying to do so remain, everybody. <laughs> what did you say? What did you say? Like, your, your your liquor store guy was like, oh, been worried about you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what happened. That's he, He's got love for you and he knows where to put it into asking how you're doing because he's been worried about yeah, you. Yeah. We'll talk about that off air as well. <laughs> I don't, uh, yeah. We'll talk about I need to talk about that off air, actually. That's one of those people in our life that you run into and like, and it's like a, good look analogy for how this film is is like those little people and you you wouldn't think of the your person you run into the liquor store but if you go to if you regularly frequent you matter to them yeah you matter to them yeah and people matter to you man that's what god damn and you appreciate a magnolia magnolia a magnolia fowler is what i almost said because ricky fowler (laughs) golf boys but uh (laughs) a magnolia flower like like almost like brings you in mm-hmm. like i mean there's a, a lot of reasons why the film is named magnolia and um i'm not gonna bring them up like if anybody listened this far into this podcast other than andrea which love you mom but uh thanks babe <laughs> <laughs> but uh if anybody listened to me on it yeah that's what i have to say about the film i love it yeah, um, I can't recommend. If like, you really want to talk to me about the film? Let's meet in person, and that's and that goes to David as well because, like, oh, I, I don't know. I have a hard time with this entire podcast trying to, you know, really encapsulate how I feel about at least Magnolia. I think every other film has gone well. Yeah. But Magnolia fucked me up. And that's okay. Yeah, I I, I love it. I can't recommend it enough. I hope that as a first time viewing, it's been interesting for me. Um, I, uh, especially going into a podcast with not having the, you know, every other film we've done has been one that we have watched like, I've watched a few times and had a built up of, of different things that I've had to say about it. This one going in raw to it in that sense has been really interesting, but then having your perspective as someone who's watched it a few times. Um, yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Uh, this is probably the first film that we've done that, uh, I have more experience with than David and, uh, Obviously, you can see by the end of this podcast that uh, this is why David usually picks the films and uh, is right in doing so. <laughs> no, I, I'm <laughs> very glad that you picked this one. Like, yeah, no, it's a great film, and I w- oh, man, the whole point of this podcast, I thought, and it's not again. This is uh, this is me talking into the mirror, but was just to do what we would do when talking at a bar about films and whatnot. Yeah. And so 
I think that's how I approach this podcast, and that's what we did. Yeah. <laughs> because I get that, like, I'm going to text you, uh, god damn it. Yeah, whatever. Just close out the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as, as usual, I uh, raise my pint or can of Guinness to this film. Um, it's a one, it's, yeah, for a three-hour film, it goes very quickly, which is, is always a good thing. Um, it, it's all relative to films. As long as the film is good, you're going to enjoy it. So, um, yeah, N- until next time, we'll uh, pour some pints, pop some popcorn, and roll some film. And we'll see you next week, Shay. Let's make some fucking money, folks. <laughs> Just give up.